This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello, everyone. My name is Danny Postel. I'm a member of Internationalism from Below, which is a grassroots, all-volunteer network of internationalist organizers, writers, and scholars that builds bridges of solidarity and cultivates cross-movement learning amongst emancipatory struggles from below of working and oppressed peoples throughout the world. IFB opposes all forms of state and imperial violence and aims to provide an alternative to those elements of the left that whitewash the violence of repressive regimes. One of the ways that we build those bridges of solidarity and cultivate cross-movement learning is through this series of political education forms like the one that we're doing today. And we're proud to partner on that series with Haymarket Books, the premier radical publisher in the United States. Today's event on Yemen is inspired by the question, what if we put the voices of Yemeni activists, social movements, and grassroots organizations at the center of our analysis? And to do that, we've brought together four amazing people, Azal al-Salafi, Yazid al-Jadawi, Hassan al-Tayeb, and Stacy Philbrick Yadav. Now, rather than introduce them myself, we're going to do things a little differently. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, and in so doing, to say a little bit about how their work, um, their research, their activism, and their life experiences brings them into this discussion and informs what they do vis-a-vis Yemen. So let's start with you, Azal. Thank you, Danny. Um, it's um, an, honor, an honor to be here. Um, I am a research fellow at Yemen Policy Center, and I am a protection and advocacy officer at Peace Track Initiative. So I hold two uh, big titles um, in terms of responsibility and the challenges of um, human rights, most specifically in Yemen. Um, uh, my educational background is a bit of an international law and uh, political science uh, with a focus on human rights uh, and democ- democratization in the MENA region. Um, my work often focuses um, on or within the intersectionality of the law, human rights and socioeconomic development. And momentarily, um, my research and work focus um, is on the pathways of protection, uh, feminist, feminism and feminist foreign policies um, and um, social innovation scenes that can impact human rights and the peace building process. Um, 
this is where I am at at the moment. And um, I cannot deny um, how much effort Yemenis within Yemen and outside Yemen are bringing together in order for them to achieve um, um, peace in Yemen. Wonderful. Thanks for that um, overview, Azal. It's wonderful to have you here as part of this discussion today. Um, Yazid, uh, tell us a little bit about your work, your background, and, and, and I should explain to our audience that you're actually joining us from uh, Sana. Uh, Azal is in Berlin, uh, Hassan is in uh, Washington, D.C., and Stacy is in New York State. Um, I should have said that earlier. But um, Yazid, tell us uh, a bit about your, um, your background, your work, and, and how it informs your engagement with the issues that we're discussing today. Thank you so much, uh, Danny. It's a great honor and enjoy the panel. Uh, before I start using or speaking a little about myself, uh, I'm not based in Sana, I'm based in Yemen. Uh, Sana might be difficult to join. Uh, I mean, such uh, a discussion from Sana could be some uh, security concerns uh, about peace in Yemen while from Sana. Uh, I am Yazid Al-Jibdawi, uh, an independent research consultant uh, who has worked or have had the opportunity to support the work of uh, some UN agencies like uh, UNDP, UNOCHA, uh, UNICEF, uh, as well as support some think tanks in the research project, uh, like Sanat uh, Center for Strategic Studies, uh, the Overseas Development Institute, uh, International Crisis Group, uh, the Yemen Policy Center and Catholic. But prior uh, to focusing on research, uh, I also worked uh, on programming and uh, project uh, executive management. I worked as uh, a group, uh, an education program manager at one of the local uh, organizations that implement uh, that. Yazid, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I just want to mention that it's a little bit hard to hear you. And is it possible for you to unplug your microphone? That yeah. yeah sure. I apologize for that interruption. No, it's just easier to continue. How is it now? Much better. Much better. Thank you. Why don't okay. we start? Why don't we actually back up and let me correct my error? I, I should not have said that you're based in Sana'a. You're based in Yemen. And so yes. let's let's start over from there and forgive me for that error. No, it's at all. Uh, yeah, I'm Yazid Al Jiddawi, an independent research uh, consultant. Uh, as a research consultant, I've had the opportunity to work and also support the work of some UN agencies like uh, UNDP, UNOCHA, and UNICEF, and also support the work of some of uh, the think tanks and uh, research centers like Sana Center for Strategic Studies, uh, the Overseas Development Institute, the International Crisis Group, uh, CARBO, and the Enopolis Center. Uh, and before focusing on research, I was working as a program, uh, an education program manager with one of the leading local organizations in Yemen. Uh, this was one of the most challenging 
but one of the most rewarding experiences. I mean, uh, working with a stellar team of uh, young people, young men and young women, uh, helping uh, the construction of uh, tens of schools in three government rates and helping tens of students uh, return to school and provide them the learning materials has been one of the most satisfying experiences that I've ever had. Uh, besides this, I, I mean, since 2018 and uh, until next month, I've been serving as uh, the regional representative, the MENA, the Middle East and North Africa regional representative uh, in the United Network of Young Peace Builders, which is the largest youth-led uh, peace uh, building uh, network uh, that has uh, more than 115 uh, youth-led peace-building organizations across uh, all over the world. Uh, and through that network, I have had the opportunity to work with peace-building organizations all over the Middle uh, East and North Africa. Uh, over to you, Johnny. Wonderful. Yazid, thank you very much. And it's, it's, it's an honor to have you as part of this discussion today. Hassan. Um, tell us a little bit about your work um, on the issue of Yemen. Well, uh, thank you, Danny, and really appreciate you putting this panel on. Uh, my name is Hassan El Tayeb. I work at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. I'm based in Washington, D.C. right now. I actually was just uh, on a three-week trip in Israel and Palestine. I know we're not talking about uh, uh, that conflict, but maybe we can have another conversation because... Um, uh, just incredible experience, but so I'm a little bit jet lagged too. So mm -hmm. forgive me. Um, I've been working on Yemen for about five years, uh, you know, particularly around the U.S. military role in the war. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of you know sides. There's warring parties. There's a lot of war crimes all around. Uh, but I'm particularly focused on the U.S. role because I pay taxes here and my weapons go to support the Saudi-led coalition's uh, blockade and airstrikes. Uh, we've been supporting things like the Yemen War Powers Resolution, uh, letters to the administration calling for an end to the blockade. <clears throat> I'm proud to say I uh, helped lobby on uh, five bills that reached Trump's desk, uh, you know, and four of those were around Yemen. And so there's a lot of a lot of energy in the U.S. right now to end all U.S. complicity, including the spare parts and maintenance and, and logistical support that we're providing. Um, really excited to see uh, the truce and the, the, no airstrikes in Yemen, but we want to continue the pressure on, on Saudi uh, and con continue the pressure on the warring parties to push this temporary truce into something more lasting, and then we can have an inclusive peace process finally and an end to hostilities. So um, I'm excited to be supporting Rep. Jai Paul and DeFazio's new Yemen War Powers Resolution. They're about to drop this bill uh, you know, in the next couple of days, possibly in the next week, and uh, happy to chat more about that uh, later on in the conversation. By all means, we want to hear a lot more about those details, Hassan. And I can say as someone who's been involved in some of the activism that Hassan referred to, uh, he's played a central role, um, not alone. There are, it's a huge grassroots mobilization that's been going on uh, for several years now. But Hassan has been on Capitol Hill in Washington. Hassan has been an absolutely critical 
uh, figure in the effort to stop U.S. support for uh, the Saudi intervention in Yemen. Um, Stacy Philbrick Yadav, uh, please tell us about what brings you to the table today. Sure, thank you. Um, so I am a professor of international relations at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in New York, but I've been working on Yemen and, and studying Yemeni politics since about 2004. Um, and in, since the wars begun, my research has increasingly been about the role of civil actors, because I think, you know, like so much of the attention goes to what conflict actors are doing and positions civilians as survivors or victims of conflict. And I think civil actors are something that's different from civilians per se, but people, I'm, I'm really interested in sort of understanding the agency of, um, of actors, of Yemeni actors outside of the, the top line conflict antagonists. Um, so I, in that context, since about 2018, I've been involved in collaborative peace building projects as a, doing sort of participant observation in the peace building space. And that's actually how I met uh, Yazid and Azal through various collaborative research projects. I've actually just had the supreme pleasure of working with Yazid for almost a year and a half now um, on, on a project together. In my uh, professional life. I'm also on the editorial committee of Middle East Report. And Danny, you and I have worked together in that capacity. Uh, we, we published a special issue on the war in Yemen a couple of years ago uh, that I co-edited with Jillian Schwedler. And um, in that context and since then, Marab has published some great work on the role of knowledge production by Yemeni civil actors. And that's become something that I'm really particularly interested in is the the multiple hats that that people wear in doing research to make evidence-based policy and to advocate for that policy from an activist standpoint. So that's sort of what makes me most excited about bringing people together in the context of this conversation. Now, I have to say um, I'm on my phone right now because I'm having terrible technological difficulties. And at some point, I am hoping to turn this screen off and get onto my computer and really hoping that that will happen because that's where all my questions are located. And um, as we planned this event, uh, because uh, I'm not a Yemeni activist, clearly, uh, I thought it would be or Danny and I thought it would be useful for me to actually moderate the discussion rather than than contribute much directly myself. But all my questions are on my computer. So I am going to start with a kind of general question that will hopefully bring the three of you together from your different positions and backgrounds um, to talk about the current ceasefire and the, the current status of conditions um, in terms of what it represents for a more durable, peaceful solution, uh, and also what it doesn't represent. So I kind of want to think about how, how excited should we be about recent diplomatic breakthroughs and where should we be more cautious in our optimism? Um, so I'd like to start with Azal and then kind of like work our way around, uh, if that's okay. Absolutely. Thank you, Stacey. Um, well, what's happening in Yemen is honestly a shift of momentum and dynamics um, to achieve an interne 
an intentional uh, peace building process um, from all political religious uh, parties and groups. Um, as we all know, Yemen is often portrayed uh, from one angle, which is the humanitarian crisis, um, and the least from the political and socioeconomic dimension, which is very often neglected. Um, nevertheless, um, whatever is happening recently is an opti optimistic sign given the geopolitical changes happening within the region and across the globe. Um, one important observation that I would have to uh, acknowledge is um, the collective consciousness that um, acknowledges the importance of the role of women um, um, to engage them meaningfully in this uh, transitional uh, process, um, whether in negotiations, um, frameworks, policy making, um, as it is crucial to achieve this uh, political and economic uh, development. Um, and um, at the internet, at the international and local level, uh, we can observe how Yemeni women are actually leading these uh, initiatives and projects, um, revolving around whether their empowerment, uh, their liberation from all forms of abuses um, and obstacles, um, formal within the formal and informal systems. Um, and that limits and hinders their rights um, and freedoms, advancements and well-being, um, which eventually hinders as well the Yemeni society as a whole. Um, and I repeatedly say that um, women are a leading force uh, in these changes. Uh, they need to be part of it. However, we can see that there is still a little bit of... Um, reluctance in achieving the 30 percent uh, women uh, political participation and women chairing uh, crucial uh, positions. Um, however, they are making gradual and steady steps towards um, achieving peace. These are the most important points that I would like to address. Um, um, and and we, we notice that we see how uh, crucial it is um, and we cannot. We need to acknowledge that we cannot move forward towards a peace building uh, process or project without women. Um, this is this is what I have to add in. To deal with the, the computer, but I'll ask uh, Yazid to take it next. And Azal, I definitely have follow up questions for you in a few minutes. Sure. Sure. Uh, thank you, Professor Stacy. Uh, in regards to the ceasefire, it gives a window of hope for Yemenis, uh, especially with the following, uh, I mean, trust or uh, confidence-building measures. The reopening of uh, the airport, the airport in Sana'a, uh, and, uh, I mean, allowing uh, and facilitating the access of uh, the basic uh, base. Commodities, uh, vessels are all uh, what makes Yemenis now more optimistic that they could eventually see an end to this uh, brutal conflict. Right? But at the same time, it sends us. It, this sends us uh, two messages. The first message is it's a reminder as well, uh, be it the truth, uh, the truth, or 
be it the reopening of uh, Sana'a airports and also uh, the partial uh, lifting of the blockade uh, on Rida uh, port. This gives us a reminder that the international community can uh, exercise pressure not only on the Saudi-led coalition, but also on Houthis themselves. Uh, the pretext that uh, the U.S. administration has uh, always used that we do not have leverage uh, over uh, Houthis, but this this is not true. I mean, uh, what, what we see on the ground, this is not true at all. Uh, we've seen it when the parties were, uh, I mean, brought to the negotiation table in 2018 to sign the Stockholm Agreement. Uh, even, I mean, it was, I mean, the situation on the ground wasn't in favor of uh, Ansarullah or Houthis. Uh, and Saudis, I mean, made Saudis and uh, I would say the Yemeni, uh, the international Yemeni government uh, accepted to sign uh, that agreement. It is not, I mean, willingly, but uh, due to the international pressure. And the same thing is what is happening now. Everyone was surprised uh, when they heard about the truce. Uh, everyone was surprised and raised many questions with the Houthis or what, let's say, the other parties commit to this rules. Until now, there are positive signs, there are positive indicators. Uh, and, I mean, we need to see how the international community and when it is capable uh, to exercise uh, pressure over these parties. The second thing uh, to remember here is uh, or to be cautious about this truth is that we shouldn't repeat the last mistakes of this so-called agreement. Uh, the revenues of Al-Hudayda should never be used again uh, to refuel conflict and resume hostilities uh, again, uh, either against other parts of the country. Uh, Yemenis need peace. Yemenis need uh, an empty world economy that is, I mean, uh, causing much more damage than the political conflict itself. Uh, we need to be very cautious and not to allow repetition of the same scenario of uh, the Stockholm Agreement. And it, ha- it is becoming more of an more, uh, more of a moral issue to the international community will see and how the community responded to the threat, and we shouldn't feel that we're treated less uh, here. I'll hand it here to you, Stacey, and I'll be happy to elaborate further in uh, next question. Thank you, Yuzi. I take your point um, about not repeating Stockholm, and I actually want to use that to turn to Hassan and say. What is different this time around, Hassan, in terms of the activist landscape, in terms of ways to realign U.S. policy? Um, is the Do you see yourself working towards an evolving set of objectives um, or, or is there still an effort to kind of approach peace, uh, the peace process in the same way? Uh, well, well, thank you. Uh, 
Good questions. And there's always been multiple things that we've been working on at the same time. We've been working on an end to U.S. complicity. I think, you know, as a taxpayer, I feel morally complicit every time uh, a bomb gets dropped on Yemen that has uh, a made in the USA stamp on it. I don't want to see my taxpayer dollars going in any way to the bombing or blockading of Yemen. Um, so that's that's critical. But we also need humanitarian assistance. We need an inclusive peace process. So these are also things that we've been calling for and working on, uh, including the replacement of UN Security Council Resolution 2216. I believe my esteemed panelists, who I'm uh, just really honored to be on the same panel with with all these great people and uh, uh, folks that have been working on this so closely. Uh, but that's something that we've wanted to to in, put in place because right now we have a broken framework for peace that requires one side to unilaterally give up all their weapons, territory, surrender, and doesn't have a framework for an inclusive peace process that does include women, girls, youth, civil society. So we we want to work on all of the above. <laughs> Now, definitely, you, you know, celebrate this two-month Ramadan ceasefire. Um, you know, I think anytime you see even, uh, you know, an inch towards peace, you have to applaud it and keep kind of putting energy behind it. Uh, you know, I would like to have seen more uh, fuel restrictions be lifted, more ships get into the country. Uh, I, I'm of the mind that we should completely decouple the blockade from the the politics. You can't you can't starve a population. You can't uh, prevent food, fuel, medicine, um, and you know medical flights out of the country as you're trying to work on a political solution. So we've always had the mind that we should decouple the blockade. I know that's difficult politically, but that's kind of what the approach we've taken. Um, and, and so we're very much still in support of ending U.S. involvement in the Saudi air war. Um, you know, we don't want to see any more uh, maintenance or spare parts of these Saudi warplanes. Uh, you know, and I think it's worth noting that, you know, the bombing campaign under Biden actually increased. There were more bombs dropped you know, under Biden than they were under Trump and, you know, in 2020 and 2021, or at least on par and the blockade even further tightened. So those are really troubling signs. Um, obviously, the war in Ukraine is playing a huge role in, in what we're seeing here with uh, the the shortages of wheat. Uh, you know, Yemen imports a lot of wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, that's going to exacerbate the hunger crisis. I I, a couple of things to answer your question. One, I do think that there's still a large appetite on Capitol Hill to, to end this participation. I don't expect a vote right away to cut off support. Uh, but you saw last year's national offense Pentagon spending bill. We got 219 Democrats and Republicans on the House side, which is a majority uh, to terminate support. This was under Biden. So I think that was significant. Uh, but now, you know, they're moving forward with this resolution. I think the idea is that they want to keep this on the table. And so if there's a resumption of hostilities or airstrikes that they would move to, to uh, you know, curtail this ongoing support. So the idea is just to kind of put the hammer on the table, uh, you know, in in the event that there is, you know, continuation of hostilities. Um, we're also, you know, definitely pushing on the blockade. We think that's essential. Uh, there are a lot of members of Congress that have spoken out and the administration have spoken out 
uh, vociferously against Houthi behavior, but their their criticisms of Saudi have actually been really muted in comparison, especially the Biden administration. So we see that as uh, a, a you know an imbalance where they're more willing to call out the Houthis and less willing, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons to call out Saudi Arabia. So we see that imbalance as a problem. And that's why our advocacy is trying to step up on pressure on specifically the U.S. role in the war. Um, where, where this will all lead, I, I'm really hopeful that if we continue to put effort on diplomacy, uh, the U.N. peace process, you know, highlighting the voices of Yemeni civil society who have been pushing for peace. And uh, let's talk about amazing Yemeni women in the U.S. that have been leading the effort. You know, I've been I've been kind of, you know, sup- really just supporting a lot of existing work here, using my position on Capitol Hill uh, to amplify, you know, Yemeni women all across the United States to, you know, speak out. And um, more and more, I think, uh, you know, we've been able to have this really wonderful, inclusive peace movement that that's, you know, bringing together Yemenis, but also right wing Republicans, peace activists, clergy, faith leaders. So on, onward. Anyway, Stacey, go ahead. So, yeah, I want to actually uh, push you a little bit on the question of inclusion and bring Azal in because, um, Azal, you didn't use the language of inclusion nearly as much as you use the language of negotiation. And I think that that's a really important and s- not even all that subtle difference. But I'm, I'm going to ask about this. So, uh, Hassan, you talked about 2216, the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2216, which underwrites everything, right? It, uh, whether you're at the grassroots in Yemen, uh, Yazid and I, and the project that we worked on together, people in focus groups time after time saying, you know, that UN Security Council Resolution 2216 is really a barrier to a more fulsome inclusion of Yemeni voices if they don't share the same binary framing and understanding of the conflict that's reflected in that document. Um, And so a lot of inclusion work seems oriented towards giving people a voice. Uh, But Azal, if I understood what you were talking about, you were talking about something different, about giving people a stake in negotiations. And I wonder if you can elaborate on that and, and maybe if we can hear from Yazid too, like what is the difference between inclusion and and, or what what should we be looking for when we want to promote inclusive peace building? Um, all right. Um, well, it is obvious um, that in order for us to achieve for um, a, a collective Yemen, um, like one Yemen that believes on all different sects and all um, the, the the part. Excuse me. I'm I'm heading towards my German language now, but um, again, I will bring the women aspect here into perspective. Um, we cannot have peace without women, for example, and they remain until this day marginalized um, to some extent, um, and. Regardless, no one can deny the impact that they are doing, whether locally, regionally, internationally, as just like the rest have mentioned. Uh, under all the obstacles and limitations, they continue to prove over and over again that peace 
uh, without their inclusion is impossible. And, and they have been really holding communities, uh, Yemeni communities. Um, they are working on, for example, the feminist peace roadmaps uh, that have um, enlightened policymaking now and driving these uh, the transformation that is happening uh, currently in the government. Um, in the recent government, they are release, releasing detainees. Uh, they are advocating and lobbying for accountability mechanisms, uh, researching, reporting, and documenting all forms of violations uh, from different uh, parties um, and also offering um, innovative solutions to contribute to a bottom-up peace-building process. So why not acknowledge this? Why not ensure that these voices are actually being heard and their, 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 this feminist, I would call it perspective is actually being implemented as well and not just, um, envision it as, um, one of the tools that can push towards a, a, a peace building process. It is crucial that they are shown acknowledgement and appreciation and full support by all means, um, whether within their communities, whether internationally through funding their local uh, potential, local initiatives. Um, and, and actually, this is the solidarity that they need um, and not just strict, strictly uh, limited towards um, social media activism, I would say, because the real activism is happening on ground. Um, and of course, we need this, this solidarity uh, from neighboring countries and importantly from media um, that can ensure that they reflect a full transparent Yemeni narrative that sheds a light on the suffering, the true suffering of Yemenis across governorates and at the same time their fullest potential to achieve this um, peace building um, process. Thank you, Azal. Yazid, do you have something you'd like to say about that? The Socialism Conference is back. The largest socialist conference in North America returns this September 2nd through 5th in Chicago, and registration is now live. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists for four days of discussion and debate about radical politics, history, and strategy. Participate in panels, lectures, and workshops on class struggle unionism, police and prison abolition, Black feminism, reproductive justice, working class internationalism, capitalist crisis, tenant organizing, Palestinian liberation, and much more. Speakers at Socialism 2022 will include Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, David Harvey, Harsha Walia, Derricka Purnell, Olufemi O. Taiwo, Kim Kelly, Mohammed El Kurd, Anand Gopal, Sophie Lewis, and many more. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Register before July 8th for the early bird discounted rate. Once again, that's socialismconference.org. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, if we look at the peace process, the UN, uh, the UN-led uh, peace process in Yemen, we should look at it from two different angles or two ways of seeing it. Uh, the informal uh, peace-building process that 
or activities that happen every day and the formal peace process, uh, which is led by the UN. And when we speak about the second or the latter one, uh, we're speaking about in which the international community uh, seem to show greater uh, in involving in, in uh, its support. Uh, now, besides the UN special envoy, we have a US special envoy uh, to Yemen. We have a Swedish special envoy to Yemen. We have a Norwegian special envoy to Yemen. But despite all this uh, interest, I mean, it is still lacking the real interest in looking at things from the perspectives of Yemenis. Uh, what is happening uh, or what we see from the international diplomacy is that uh, it's a sort of competition between these uh, international powers to uh, make more or to gain more privileges. Uh, I mean, to make scores for their own advantage rather than for Yemenis. For instance, uh, when there were some deliberation about the appointment of uh, a new UN uh, special envoy to Yemen, there was that sort of debate between uh, the US, the UK, Russia, China, uh, and Europe. Uh, Yemenis, I mean, uh, the Yemeni conflict, uh, I mean, th there was a period when there was no special envoy to Yemen uh, from the UN, just because these international powers were, everyone wanted to, uh, I mean, force their say, uh, so that, I mean, they show that they are having the upper hand uh, in terms of diplomacy. Uh, we've seen this practice as well uh, when the Stockholm Agreement was signed. The US wants to take credit for that. They are the masterminds that, uh, I mean, wrote or pushed the agreement into effect. Uh, some US diplomats say it is uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, James Mattis, who came up with the idea, while the UK say, no, it is our, uh, we, we are the ones who should take credit. I mean, while this debate is ongoing, I mean, what Yemenis are getting from uh, the peace process? Is it moving? Uh, does it result in tangible outcomes that would help alleviating the sufferings of people? Mm, nothing uh, until now. Uh, and if we look at the UN-led uh, peace process and its uh, track one, I mean, following or pursuing uh, this two-party framework would not lead to a real change, uh, would not, I mean, uh, result in achieving a sustainable peace in Yemen. Uh, we're trying just to limit the negotiation to the parties that have the least interest in achieving peace, the parties that uh, profit from war economy. Uh, I mean, we are speaking about two parties that are disconnected from realities. One of the parties seem to be deliberately and fully ignorant of the suffering of people. I mean, might not care uh, whether it is, I mean, they lose thousands or hundreds of thousands of innocent people or fighters in the battlefronts and other party that seem to be unable to show that it has agency or it has the ability, I mean, uh, to support the people uh, who needs, I mean, 
uh, a voice to the international community. Uh, so we are getting this for the people who are listening, that the first party that you were referring to was Ansar Allah, and the second party would be the very, um, the challenged internationally recognized government of Yemen. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I mean, just limiting limiting the negotiation to these parties seems to be like a repetition of uh, the GCC initiative in one way or another. We're just giving the political actors or the relevant political elites a chance again, or we're doing a repackaging of uh, these actors uh, so that, I mean, they continue to hold uh, into power and then decide the fate of Yemenis while Yemenis is just moving from worse to worse. And to circle back to my question about inclusion versus negotiation, the transitional period that you're referring to with the Gulf Cooperation Council-backed transitional process, it gave the decision-making power to partisan elites predominantly, and it invited other sectors of society to be included through the national dialogue process. And so this is sort of highlighting that distinction between inclusion that means like giving your opinion versus having a binding stake in decision-making. So Hassan, let me turn to you and say, when we look at U.S. policymaking here, um, you know, as a U.S. citizen, I share deeply uh, your commitment to not have my tax dollars supporting the war in Yemen. But what could we maybe be thinking about in terms of supporting a, a more durable or a more realistic peace process as well? Well, I mean, I think uh, Azal and Yazid, I would just listen to what they have to say uh, about about getting that done. I mean, I'm I work on Yemen. I know a lot about Congress. I know about these mechanisms to to end U.S. participation. Uh, we can you know support through humanitarian assistance. I've been trying to get more people to call for the replacement of 2216 for, you know, an inclusive peace process. Um, I'm so I'm pounding. I, I assure you, I'm talking to lawmakers, knocking on their doors. Some doors are opening. Some doors are closing. <laughs> uh, I, I tried to get lawmakers to actually work on 2216 at the start of the Biden administration. I even wrote an op-ed about it and was having trouble. Uh, they they wanted to follow the lead of the Biden administration um, and basically have said, we're going to table this for now. We're going to trust Lender King. We're going to trust the UN process. And that's kind of where that conversation goes. So there wasn't that appetite at that time. I still think there are a lot of people, there's a consensus that it's broken and needs to change. It's just right now they were trying to give Biden that runway. Things are changing, though, because now members are, are you know, introducing this new Yemen war powers resolution. And so it, it shows uh, a real, you know, uh, impatience with the administration's process on how they're approaching Yemen. I think they want to see an end to the war now. Lawmakers tell me all the time how committed they are to resolving this humanitarian crisis. A lot of times they don't know the right levers to pull. I, for one, don't think it's up to the U.S. to decide what ye happens in Yemen. That's not my role. You know, I would never claim to know. I've, you know, I've actually 
even though I have family in Yemen, I've never met them, actually. I've got family in Aden. Um, I, I hope someday we can all go hang out and, and get a cup of Yemeni coffee there because I hear it's the best in the world. Uh, but but for my perch in the U.S., it's just not my place to decide the future of Yemen. But I, I feel like I do have agency over where my tax dollars are going. Don't want to see them used to be bombing, blockading, starving. Um, we want to put pressure points, but I would... I would kind of, you know, open that up to Azal and Yazid if there's more that we can be doing in the U.S. Uh, to help to help what you're trying to, to to accomplish. Absolutely. So I I want Yazid and Azal. I want to ask you, like, if Hassan's initiatives and, and the initiatives uh, that are coming from the left to, you know, restrict weapons sales and other forms of support for the Saudi-led coalition, if that advances, what does that change for you in terms of the work that you see peace builders advancing in Yemen? Um, well, this is a very important question, obviously, um, but there needs to be... How how we observe things at the moment um, in Yemen is that um, most of the focus on especially limiting um, weapons um, or all these policy making U.S. policy making that drives continues to drive war in Yemen and conflict in Yemen. When when we take a closer look, we will see that there is actually also an internal um, chaos in the country, an internal um, conflict and war beyond then beyond what um, the Saudi collision, uh, Arab collision, has already uh, contributed to as well. Um, so it's it's important that Yemenis within themselves, first of all, work together um, as one and collectively, not only Yemeni parties, groups, all sects, organizations, civil society, individuals who have the capacity to, they have to come together and uh, and acknowledge that without them, um, peace will be much harder to achieve. It won't be impossible, but it would be harder. And we need to also, uh, this is something that rarely is even talked about, we need to focus on our cultural uh, contributions to this context. For example, when we think about Yemen, Yemen is one of the most um, 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 like the people, the like the number of weapons that are used by uh, families in Yemen are much higher than the population in itself. So we need to somehow fundamentally change this culture of abuse, this culture of violence, uh, this culture that despite the fact that these weapons can also be contributing, like contribute as part of a heritage and culture and tradition, but honestly, it is just contributing to aggregating and um, making the, this ceasefire um, or peace building process much harder. So despite the fact that this is also um, the issue, there is also the issue of radicalization that has been, that has swept the country. So it's not only within uh, the, the Houthi territory areas where 
you know, Houthis are radicalizing and terrorizing children and changing whole curriculums and syllabus that is now impacting generations ahead. But we also have in Adan and maybe Yazid can uh, can probably add to this that there is some sort of uh, extremism um, in uh, in the country uh, that is going on in 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 the southern areas. So we need to first of all dissect and um, unpack these issues from within. At the same time, work internationally with um, you know policymakers um, to influence and implement best practices as well um, in 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 Yemen. I think this is my take. There's, I can go on forever, to be honest. But uh, my issue is not mainly what um, the people from the outside can help Yemen, but more or less, how can Yemenis help themselves first? You see? Yes, uh, I think there are many ways in which the U.S. lawmakers uh, could help Yemen. And the starting point is to understand the nature of the conflict correctly. And to start, I mean, assuming that uh, it is only a binary conflict between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia or between uh, Houthis and Saudi Arabia. Uh, This is is not the right way of seeing the conflict. Uh, Houthis are not just representing Houthis as an ideological group or as a group that claims it has the right uh, to rule uh, from God. It is a sort of an alliance between Houthis and the northern uh, northern tribal uh, elites uh, that call itself uh, the upper Yemen, uh, which claims ha- having the right to rule Yemen or at least or destroy Yemen. Maybe just in a minute, I'll tell you a story about what happened in 2007 and October 2007, just to explain what we are facing, the nature of the conflict. In 2007, there was a shipper uh, who uh, had a dispute with uh, a local authority official who is originally from uh, the northern area. They had that conflict, and that shipper tried to protect his land, and then he came that local authority. His tribe, I mean, sent around 50 fighters. And who were these 50 fighters? The general director. I mean, they were headed by the general director of the Criminal uh, Investigation Administration, uh, the dean of one of the faculties, the, I mean, a lot of uh, local officials from another government from the north, they came and they went to the, that man who actually, uh, who, I mean, went to the police and told him, I killed someone, I, I need justice. Uh, I mean, see or follow the path to justice the way you see it. He came to seize my land and I ended up killing him. He was in prison. But what happened? Those local authority leaders, starting with those who are running a university in that government, who are, I mean, providing security in that government, went into the jail and stabbed him 50 times and, I mean, killed him in a brutal way. And then what the 
Ali Abdullah Saleh regime did, did nothing, just exercised pressure over uh, the sheikhs in Ib, where the crime I mean, took place. They forced uh, the local authorities just uh, to accept a reconciliation back uh, and then accept, I mean, uh, not claiming just anymore. The same thing happened in 2019, Houthis, I mean, uh, took over after Houthis took over. Uh, a whole village was burned in Ebb. I mean, 200 fighters traveled from Sana'a and they crossed all over the checkpoints of Houthis. And Houthis have that sort of reputation that they have uh, strict security measures and they uh, have been able to undermine the influence of the tribes. But what was happening in 2019? was something different. They just allowed the passage and the travel of more than 200 fighters from Sana'a to Ib to go and burn five houses in a certain village in a, in a district called Hubeish. They burnt houses. They destroyed the livelihoods, farms. They uh, took hostages and took them back to Sana'a. And Houthis were just I think we may have lost Yazid's audio for just a second. I want to say something to try and bring a few of these threads together. So uh, when we were introducing my, ourselves, I didn't say that I have a book coming out in September that is about justice in Yemen uh, and specifically about the cascading series of injustices over the past 30 years that have not been addressed but are still very much operative beneath the surface in local communities. So the situation that Yazid was just describing from 2007 may sound like ancient history from the perspective of the current war, but it isn't. And these compounded injustices are super important to what people are looking for for the future. But to give a, a contemporary example, obviously people, different stakeholders understand justice differently, right? What they substantively think would be just is really different. But when there are opportunities for people to um, identify overlapping consensus on justice, they show a remarkable uh, willingness to work together to pursue those aims. So in, in a governorate in, in Yemen recently, for example, um, 10 people were brought together representing different stakeholder groups to talk about what is the biggest local priority. And they actually agreed, despite being from really different backgrounds, that it was important to get a woman elected to the municipal council, I mean, it, or appointed to the municipal council. It was a really concrete, small-scale objective. The reasons that people wanted to advance it were really different, depending on who they were, but that overlapping consensus resulted in the policy. And you might be thinking, if you're listening, uh, why are there municipal councils? There's a civil war. and But one of the overwhelming features of the war is that it's so fragmented that people are governing de facto in local areas in lots of different ways. And so part of the peace building challenge is how do those lots of different ways come together into a, a, a a coherent whole. And some people will tell you that they shouldn't, that it shouldn't be a single coherent whole. And I want to grant for anybody who might be listening that we got some pushback in advance of this event about 
why there wasn't someone to represent uh, Southern interests, for example, among the speakers. And I don't want to privilege any one representational category, but to say that we only have two Yemeni uh, activists on the panel. But part of the reason that we selected Yazid and Azal is that they're also working in this intermediate space as researchers and activists. And the research work is helping both of them and others like them to surface the amount of diversity that exists right now in terms of what Yemenis are imagining for their future. So um, Internationalism from Below put out a great thread with some publications that they that uh, Azal and Yazid have put together that I have published that Hassan, uh, some, some projects that Hassan's been working on as well. I think at this point we should open to questions, but uh, I'm going to call on Danny to field them because my technological difficulties persist. Danny? We have a question from one audience member, Prester John, who says it's more of a, a statement, but I think he probably would like to hear. Um, some responses to it. He says, Saudis are not allowing gas shipments into Yemeni ports. By holding up these tankers for months, fees are racked up and Yemen is on the hook to pay the costs. The siege is killing more people than the war itself. Would anyone like to respond to that? I mean, Azal, I'd give you the floor first. Doesn't seem like you want to. Um, the Saudi blockade is exacerbating the humanitarian crisis. I mean, it's no question. Hospitals need fuel to operate. You need fuel to deliver food. This is playing a huge role. Um, so it, we need to make sure that Yemen gets, you, you know, the, the fuel it needs. And there's uh, a UN mechanism, the UN verification and inspection mechanism in Djibouti. Um, these ships are, you know, vetted. There's no Iranian weapons. There's no illicit material of any kind getting through uh, the UNMIM process. And they should just be allowed to get in. And we've got over 100 U.S. lawmakers that have made that point. Uh, like almost 80 uh, civil society organizations in the United States and the Biden administration has even said uh, that we need to open up uh, these ports of entry. There shouldn't be these additional restrictions. So, of course, it's playing a huge role. Um, I can add, actually, <laughs> since um, um, you mentioned that, I believe it's not, honestly, this um, humanitarian crisis is not only due to the Saudi collision blockade. I think it's more than that because there is corruption, there is humanitarian aid corruption within Yemen, and there is blockade within Yemen also by the Houthis, which contributed even further. So we also need to acknowledge that and not just like uh, limited um, to uh, the Saudi uh, blockade that is happening. Um, that was just my addition. Yeah, I, I think Yazid also spoke to the context of the war economy as a whole and the fact that there are powerful, there are people who are profiting from the difficulty of getting goods to markets. And uh, it's, it's 
you know, average Yemenis that are paying the very high cost for that. Stacey, could I, could I just say one more thing in response? Um, yes, there there's obstruction happening inside the country as well, and that's a huge issue. But my philosophy on this is when you've got the upstream obstruction in the Saudi blockade, we can't let uh, uh, flights in, we can't let fuel in, that exacerbates the, you know, the actors on the ground. That makes it worse. I just think back to uh, the pandemic where there was the toilet pa- uh, toilet paper shortage that led to hoarding, <laughs> you know, because people were like, okay, well, we're not going to have toilet paper. So we're going to go buy like, you know, uh, 10 bunch of, what do you call bunches? I don't know, like bo- boxes of them, but people were hoarding them. And then, so that, that was happening. This is like econ 101. If you create this supply chain shortage, you're going to have this kind of behavior and uh, obstruction and corruption exacerbated internally. So uh, that's kind of my theory of change is why I put so much attention on the Saudi blockade. It's not to negate what's happening downstream as well. I, I want to be- 100% with you on the on the general question of the Saudi blockade and also the fact that as US citizens that's where our greatest leverage is but I think that uh you know collapsing civil servants salaries was also a part of this story that is really important and something that the government of Yemen pretty much got a pass on from its international partners so you know it I there's a lot of blame to go around. I, my concern is that we not have outsized expectations that there's one and only one lever to pull. Um, do we have another question, Danny? Before we go to the next question, uh, Yazid, did you want to uh, chime in on that? Yes, uh, I mean, my internet connection dropped. I'm sorry for this. Uh, but one more thing that I think that uh, the U.S. lawmakers can uh, provide I mean, to support Yemenis on the ground is starting with listening to the Yemeni, the American Yemeni community there uh, in the U.S., not only through the lens of the peace builders uh, in the U.S. who are lobbying, I mean, uh, there. Go and reach, hold interviews with uh, that Yemeni-American community, speak to them in private, see whether they're able to voice their concerns or say their opinions or not. They're threatened while they are American citizens, while they are in the U.S. I mean, they're enjoying uh, freedom and democracy there, but they cannot express themselves about Yemen. They cannot say anything because there is a structure of supervisors in the U.S. existing. I'm from Ed, which makes the largest Yemeni community, uh, Yemeni American community in the U.S. And I know what these people face. Some of them are my family, some of the uh, family members, some of them are our neighbors, some of them our friends. They have been forced to be silent. They cannot speak, they cannot say, because whenever someone says something, I mean, it is it, it gets reported and then they might, I mean, lose their properties in Yemen or their families might appear uh, harsh consequences or uh, dire repercussions for what they're saying. This is also one way of learning about the Yemeni context and understanding things as they stand. The last thing or the last point I would, uh, I mean, add, just look at what is happening in Ta'iz. And I mean, it shouldn't be, I mean, uh, only lifting the Saudi 
blockade. This is very important, but at the same time, look at the local dynamics. Look at the blockade against Ta'iz. I mean, we're having 4 million people suffering there. And if we're repeating the Stockholm uh, scenario in which we give concessions and allow hostilities and without seeing other uh, concessions from the other party, that would be disastrous. We need to, I mean, uh, peer that responsibility because some U.S. diplomats, I mean, acknowledge or let's say claim that it is the U.S. who have a hand in initiating this conflict through, uh, I mean, just to support the signing of the Iranian nuclear uh, deal. They have, I mean, allowed that leverage so that Houthis can capture Yemen. I'm not sure about this narrative, but in case it was, then the U.S. bears also responsibility in all of this conflict and also in, in enabling Houthis as well as in, I mean, uh, supporting Saudis at the same time. So there should be a moral responsibility, not just to stop uh, selling weapons because this would never end the conflict because of the local dynamics and because of, I mean, the belief that Houthis hold, I mean, and the tribal, uh, the northern tribal, uh, I mean, elite that have that sense and that notion of superiority while the rest parts of the country are inferior citizens that should only pay zakat and should be subjugated uh, and obey whatever comes from the north. I mean, all these should be taken into consideration while we try to support Yemenis. Thank you for that, Yazid. And I, Azal, I see you nodding as Yazid uh, speaks. Would you like to add anything to that? No? Okay. You know, um, I, I will please. say, as far as listening to Yemenis, one thing that was, we've been leading so many sign-on letters and coalition statements, um, and the Yemeni Merchant Association um, in New York the, that led the bodega protest, they've never signed anything we've supported until now. They just endorsed the Yemen War Powers Resolution. So I thought that was actually pretty significant. And um, it took a lot of conversations over time. Can you say anything about what you think changed? You, you know, I, it, I'm, I would be curious if Azal or Yazid had any ideas. Uh, it seems like to me, maybe it seemed like there was, uh, you know, a lot of momentum around, you know, ending the Saudi airstrikes and the Saudi airstrikes have really increased over the past year. And obviously with the attacking of the migrant detention uh, facility in um, Sada and, uh, you know, attacking the reservoir that cut off water to 120,000 people, uh, cutting off Internet for, for several days in the country. You know, I think, you know, them seeing the U.S. role in these continued airstrikes and how they were being, you know, targeting civilians especially the increase after uh, the the UN sort of accountability mechanism was uh, dissolved. You know, we saw this increase in, in violence by the Saudi coalition. So, you know, I think all of these played a factor, if I had to guess. For people who are listening and might not be fully aware of the GEE, the, the group of eminent experts, the UN Human Rights Council's monitoring body um, was dissolved under Saudi pressure 
uh, last fall, right? It was last fall. Um, and so that has really ended any kind of in independent international monitoring of the human rights situation. I will say that the work that Yemeni activists themselves are doing to document ongoing human rights violations and other forms of violations all over the country is really epic. Um, but it is just like the war, also really fragmented. And so the absence of that coordinated investigation body is, is very much felt. And the ramifications of that for any kind of post-war process are significant as well. Okay. Um, I am going to ask a question myself, if that's okay, with my interlocutors. Um, Yazid, you mentioned narratives um, a moment ago, and I think that, um, you know, a couple of the – unfortunately, uh, Yemen is, is largely invisible in American uh, policy debates and media. Um, it's uh, especially uh, in the last uh, few months – uh, since the start of the Ukraine war. But to the extent that there's a narrative about uh, Yemen, I, it seems to me that there are two two main ones. Maybe there are more, but the ones that stick out to me are, you know, the sectarian narrative. So you have Thomas Friedman, for example, the New York Times columnist and best-selling author and pervasive pundit. Um uh, saying he wrote in a column a couple of years ago that the main issue uh, in Yemen today is the seventh century struggle over who is the rightful heir to the prophet Muhammad, Shiites or Sunnis, and and his point in 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 making this uh, making this claim is that it's basically unresolvable. I mean, if you if people are still fighting over seventh century con religious conflicts, uh, you know what can you do? They're just they've always hated each other and they always will. Now, Stacey, you've written explicitly and forcefully against this sectarian framing of the Yemen conflict. And then there's another uh, uh, narrative that one hears all the time, which is perhaps a little bit less um, obviously silly, uh, which is uh, to say the, the conflict, uh, the, the narrative that, that the Yemen conflict is essentially a proxy war. And this is one that you hear really uh, amongst uh, all sorts of people across the ideological spectrum. Um, it's just kind of a, uh, it sounds like a truism, right? It's a proxy war because the Saudis are involved. The U.S. is on the Saudi side. Iran is on the Houthi side. It's a proxy war. You've, writ you've written forcefully, argued forcefully against both of these framings, the sectarian framing and the idea that it's a proxy war. So my question is partly for you, but I'd like to hear from any of the other panelists about what's wrong with these, these narratives. Thanks, Danny. Um, I mean, I, I have probably not used the word silly, but I agree with you in assessing the idea that this it has a sectarian origin point, right? That's, that does seem just uh, completely inaccurate to me. But where you start the clock on the drivers of conflict in Yemen is a really complicated question. And it's undoubtedly the case that the war has sectarianized conflict, right? It has infused conflict with an increasingly sectarian character 
And it has eroded the social fabric of Yemen in a way that is going to be generational. Absolutely. It has also fueled internal displacement in a way that is sort of repopulating the country in some ways that may have sectarian implications or may lead communities looking different than they have in the past. But when I did my predominant fieldwork in Yemen, uh, my notes almost never indicated what someone's sectarian background was because it was not really a uh, predominant way in which people were talking. And that was at the, the beginning of the Houthi movement, to tell you the truth. It, it came up. Uh, it did come up. There some some sectarian language around the Houthi movement and responses to it. But that's something that just I've watched increase over time. And so when something increases over time, it's not the origin story of the conflict. There's something else that was driving conflict and this was a facilitating condition. In terms of proxy war, um, you know, there's a difference between an internationalized civil war, which this is, and uh, a proxy war. And I think proxy language strips Yemenis of their agency, and I, the, it fuels this binary understanding of the conflict. So to me, uh, recognizing the role of international actors is certainly important, relevant, and valid, uh, but it's not where we should start and it can't be where we're going to end when we're thinking about what it means to to resolve conflict or to envision a more a more peaceful future so i i don't know that's that's about what i would say um but i would definitely be interested to to hear from my colleagues here azal or yazid would you like to chime in on that Yeah, I mean, the sectarian lens uh, is always, uh, I mean, used to serve the purpose of politicians uh, in one way. As I've said earlier, it is not only the influence of Houthis that have uh, that, that has enabled them, I mean, take over Sana'a and then uh, grow stronger over the course of time. Uh, I mean, in the northern parts of Yemen, and it could also be applicable to other parts of Yemen, Politicians tend to use the best way through which they can, I mean, uh, assume power. One way is, I mean, taking this sort of costume, I mean, the sectarian one. Uh, I still remember when, when Houthis wanted to advance from Sa'da to Amran, and then the tribes in Amran led by Al-Ahmar family, one of the strongest tribes in the Zaidi community, uh, started to claim that we are the defendants of Sunnah. We are the heroes of Sunnah. I mean, we're seeing one of the strongest families in Yemen and one of the strongest tribes in Yemen and one of the most influential one trying to frame itself that it is defending Sunnah again as Houthis. Why? They're not part, I mean, of uh, these areas that are called Chafis or that stick to the principles or the guidance of Sunnah. Uh, they hail from a Zaidi community, but because it serves this uh, their political purposes, they started to claim that uh, they are, I mean, defending Sunnah. And the same thing can happen every time. I mean, uh, one of the political leaders of Al-Islah, uh, one of the I mean, religious, uh, most respected religious leaders of Al-Islah 
when he felt that he might be in danger, started to speak about Syrianism and to uh, start, I mean, speaking about narratives that favor Houthis. I mean, just to advance their agendas and then to protect himself. This is how how, how this, I mean, uh, Syrian narrative, I mean, is more used just to achieve political gains. Azal, would you like to add anything to that? Or Hassan, for that matter? Um, Stacy and Yazid have um, said what needs to be said, honestly, so I'm, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Stacy and Yazid, for the for, for those answers. Um, yes. Stacy, back to oh, so Hassan, go ahead. Uh, so, to me, maybe there's like legal definitions for what a proxy war is, or you know, internationally supported civil war. You know, I I guess I'm not exactly sure where the line is, but when you have international, you know, the international community and countries intervening in a conflict like you see in Yemen, uh, like you see in Syria, like you see elsewhere, they drag out the conflict. These conflicts last a lot longer. And that's why I think we need to be, you know, in the international community. I would just, again, I've said it a couple times today, but make the case for trying to extract these foreign powers from sending their weapons, military aid into the country. So, you know, we can create a space where, you know, we can actually see more fertile ground for peace. It doesn't, you know, again, I'm not claiming that it's the only thing that needs to happen. Uh, but I think, you know, that's one contribution that I think we need to, you know, try to achieve in the U.S. And I see, you know, we've been chipping away at it for like five, six years now. Uh, we're very close, I think, to ending this last bit of support, which is the spare parts and maintenance for the Saudi aircraft. Um, you know, and without that support from the U.S., without these daily transfers, they couldn't fly any of their warplanes. Um, now, MBS has kind of thrown his lot in with the Republicans. I think that this is something we haven't discussed here, but I, I see the Saudis as really focused on trying to sink Democrats. They want Democrats to lose in the midterms and they want Trump to win. And they and they, you know, aren't showing nearly any respect for uh, for, for Democrats in the Biden administration here. And I, I think that's playing a big role in, in what you see uh, going forward. The Biden's uh, Biden approach has been I think you're probably going to see a detente this summer between Biden and MBS, where they do a photo op, maybe even shake hands and try to uh, mend this relationship with the goal of trying to get Saudi Arabia to produce more oil. So so I, I see this as a very critical window with this truce. Uh, with the, the ceasefire, with the slight opening of the airport and this push on the hill uh, to kind of make progress, uh, you know, in the short term that, that hopefully can, you know, you know, at least extract the U.S. a bit more from this conflict. I could just say something quickly. I think, you know, um, I definitely agree that the role of international actors complicates and drags out the, the conflict, there's no question. If we look comparatively at civil wars um, in other parts of the world, one thing that is also clear is that it's tough to get a peace agreement with a lot of actors, but a peace agreement that involves a lot of actors has a better chance of lasting. 
it has a better chance of actually producing conditions for more sustainable peace. So I put that out there because I, I think that uh, foreign policy that's focused on leveraging the Saudi coalition to stop the airstrikes. I, I've had some disagreements with some folks uh, on Capitol Hill about this, about whether or not if that objective is achieved, um, members of Congress will just kind of be like, okay, our job here is done. And then kind of check out of the broader peace process. And I think as a, as an internationalist gathering on this call, you know, thinking about uh, forms of solidarity that can endure beyond that is also really important. Um, and I, I would love to hear from Yazid and Azal about what just as, as people, you know, people who put pressure on our governments, but people who also act in other ways and through other networks, what kind of solidarity would really be meaningful from the outside for you and the kind of work that you do? Um, I've already mentioned that, but I want to emphasize something uh, with what um, Hassan um, was mentioning. And I think that Yemen continues to be seen as one war or, or one conflict. Meanwhile, if you eat take a closer look, we will see the war of the Southern and the North, and then we have the tribal war, and then we have um, um, the, the, the Houthi and, um, you know, the civilians war. So there, there are so many dimensions when we look at it. Um, but coming back again to how can we actually um, ensure that there is some form of solidarity and some sort of support to um ensure that uh, that the resilience i would say of these uh, societies or individuals yemen individuals or actors or initiatives continue to achieve or continue to work through this peace uh, process is to first of all acknowledge them um, because what many organizations, um, especially humanitarian ones, they fund, but then eventually they take credit. Um, and when, in fact, like the local organizations are doing this field work, are doing, are, are creating impact. Um, so this is one crucial thing is that in, in invest in local initiatives, invest in um, even small businesses, um, ensure that they are um, that they are not only solely um, have a, like provide um, this specific narrative because most of the donors also would want to. I would say politicize their agendas, politicize their donors, their donorship and, and, and their grants. Um, and this can create obstacles in achieving, um, um, a unified, um, um, outcome, I would say that represents Yemeni's needs and Yemeni's, um, issues. Um, again, it's mostly on funding the right organizations, making sure that um, women are also part of the equation. Uh, they are supported and they are part of these, of this meaningful process. Um, and that surrounding neighboring countries and activists should also ensure that they use these international networks to solidify their, uh, their activism and advocacy and as well, um, ensure that 
the international community speaks more of Yemen from or amplify the Yemeni voices rather than giving it their own narrative. And I'm not saying that researching, observing the Yemeni context from a Western point of view is bad. In fact, it's very helpful, but we need to dig a little bit deeper and we need to um, hear, listen, and um, make sure that we transcribe all these stories, all these issues that are happening in Yemen and ensure that these these are the things that need most analysis rather than um, the Western analysis, I would call it, uh, on into the context of conflict Yemen. Um, these are the types of solidarity I personally would like to see and many women feminists uh, that are advocating for at the moment. We have just a few minutes left, um, and so I'd love to know if our panelists have any closing thoughts, and and also if you could maybe mention um, for people who really want to engage with this issue, and maybe I'll start with you, Hassan, people who want to get more involved, get re-engaged or engaged for the first time with the issue of Yemen. On the U.S. front, Hassan, when you mentioned that there's a war powers resolution coming in in a matter of days now, um, what, what, what can people do if they really want to, to find out where their elected representatives stand on that issue or if they want to um, get in touch with them to let them know to support it? What, what, what's the, what are the next steps for people to do, Hassan? I think you're muted, Hassan. Uh, sorry, Yazid had unmuted himself. I don't know if he wanted to say something at this point. Um, but no, just go ahead. Maybe later. Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, thank you. Uh, I, I love this discussion. You know, I, I learned some stuff. I hopefully uh, my contribution helped people understand how a lot of these, uh, a lot of the activists in the U.S. Are, are thinking about this and trying to, you know, contribute in their in in a way. Obviously, not the only thing that needs to happen, but uh, I just want to assure Stacy that I'm not going to be giving up on Yemen after we end U.S. support. We're going to keep it going and continuing to keep this on the agenda for lawmakers uh, now for as long as I'm working in D.C. Um, and it's going to be, uh, you know, it's obviously, you know, I've got family in, in there uh, and I want to see them survive and thrive. Uh, so if folks want to help in the U.S. in particular, I do think supporting the Jayapal DeFazio resolution is critical. Um, getting your your member of Congress uh, on the House side uh, to co-sponsor would be fantastic. We set up a one eight three three stop war number so you can just call that up and just get connected right to your member of Congress and leave a message and support. There's a prompt there that will you know, assist you. If you want to get more information, uh, you can check out the coalition letter that we led and signed by a bunch of Yemeni organizations, including the Yemen, Yemeni merchants in, in New York uh, and, and also 70 national organizations, not just lefties, but we've also got some right wing organizations as well. So it's truly a bipartisan international coalition we're trying to build uh, in the U.S. So please check out FCNL.org. And I, I hope you all keep in touch. 
I will very briefly say, um, if you want to continue to educate yourselves on these topics, don't just listen to stuff like this. Although I'm really, really grateful that we were able to, to hear from Azal and Yazid and learn more about Hassan's work. Uh, but read Yemenis. And I say that because a lot of, not just Azal and Yazid, a lot of young Yemeni activists, advocates, researchers are writing about this stuff in English. Far too much of it is not being published in the United States or through US-based think tanks, but it's accessible stuff out there through CARPO, through the Yemen Policy Center, the Sana'a Center. These are all venues that are supporting some really great research that, that I think is running underneath this conversation. Thanks for that, Stacey Azal. Yazid, would you like to offer any closing thoughts and suggestions for people to get engaged, to follow uh, important sources? Azal, you've mentioned several times the importance of Yemeni women. Is there anything in particular? I mean, I should also mention that everyone should follow our four wonderful panelists on Twitter because their Twitter feeds are, are treasure troves of important resources. But Azal, any closing thoughts? Um, I already said my part. I want to give the, the, the space uh, for my colleague Yazid. But thank you so much for hosting this. I think we need more of this, more um, um, panels, more um, conferences that uh, amplify the voices of Yemenis and just like Stacy has mentioned, there are many, many experts, young experts that have the potential and deserve to be heard. Um, and, and, and they have solutions, not only just tackling issues, they have solutions. So they need, we must listen to them. And this is, this would be the right step towards a peace building process, actually. Thank you so much. Thank you, Azal. And Yazid, would you like to close us out? Yeah, just uh, I'd like to second what Professor Stacy and uh, my colleague Azal have just said. I mean, read uh, what Yemenis, I mean, write, uh, see things through the way they see. I mean, uh, see what Sana Center publishes, what the Yemeni Voice Center publishes, see what is written or published through Carbo. This would help understanding the dynamics in Yemen and would help seeing how Yemenis, I mean, uh, perceive peace and how they're striving to achieve uh, a lasting peace in Yemen, not through, I mean, uh, just having that sort of support given to the political elites while excluding those who are making peace uh, every day in their communities and those who are struggling to lift uh, the suffering of the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Uh, and I'd like also to thank you for uh, having us in this uh, I mean, uh, interesting discussion. And like what Azal said, I, I really hope that there would be similar discussions with other Yemeni voices who could, I mean, just speak on behalf of the Yemenis uh, inside. I couldn't agree more. And I want to really thank all of you for taking this time out uh, to, to be part of this discussion, to sh for sharing your insights, your experiences, your knowledge. Um, and I, I really appreciate it, not only what, what each of you individually said, but the sort of the interplay and exchanges uh, amongst the four of you. 
Um, and I particularly want to thank Stacy for, for helping curate this discussion and bringing Azal and Yazid into um, <clears throat> the, the orbit of internationalism from below and Haymarket books. Um, it's it's this is the exactly the spirit of internationalism solidarity building and movement learning that internationalism from below exists to cultivate and so i really want to thank all of you and hassan for your tireless struggles on capitol hill um that are just at the forefront. I mean, I, I, I've seen uh, uh, how you operate. I know what you do. You're very humble, but I must say that you're oh, for several years now. You have been at the at the very um, cutting edge uh, of so much of the critical work going on around Yemen in Washington, keeping the issue alive and keeping so many of us aware of what's happening. So let's keep that conversation going. Um, thank you uh, again for everybody who, who tuned in today and uh, share this video and uh, follow internationalism from below on Facebook and Twitter, uh, follow Haymarket Books and follow all of our wonderful speakers today uh, on Twitter, uh, get on their email lists and um, keep engaged, stay engaged with this issue. Thanks. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.